The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Joining us for the week trending, Kieran Cunningham, Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Daily Star, and Ro McDermott, who Irish Times columnist and movie critic with Hot Press. So let's start with the potential for the cinematic event of the year in Ireland. The much delayed, keenly anticipated release of Michael Flatley's movie debut, Blackbird. Let's hear the trailer. Is today the day you wish to confess your sins? No, today. My sins are my own. You heard about the incident in London? Blake Molyneux is extremely dangerous. This is our chance. We must get Victor involved. No one can do what he does. Not the man I used to be. The Blackbird is dead. You're the only one who can stop this. We've got to come back and fight. When are we going to get past this? I'll never get past this! You can't just hide from the world. Victor Blackley. I believe you have something in mind. Who I am is none of your concern. And what I do is out of your control. Bless me, Father. For I have sinned. And I'm about to sin again. Finally. Finally, it's coming in September. And Ro, as uh, Mario might say in his flatly gift grub, that'll butter your treaties for you. <laughs> I am so excited for this. Perhaps not for the reasons that Michael Flatley wants me to be excited, but rumours about this film have been around for years. It was first announced in 2018, but nobody had seen it. There were private screenings for family and friends. We knew that Michael Flatley, who, by the way, has no other film experience except for a gag credit in 2001, a space travesty a spoof parody starring <laughs> Leslie Nielsen. And the joke is that Michael Flatley is not in this movie. And now he's the star of this Casablanca meets James Bond movie that's completely self-financed. Now, he did say to The Hollywood Reporter at some stage a couple of years ago that he didn't self-finance because it was a vanity project. Of course not. He just said it would have just taken too long to raise the money. And I didn't know what I'd be doing next year. So the window is there. So we had to get it done. So Michael Flatley is so busy that he had to self-fund this he's project. He's a canny b- businessman, Kieran, isn't he? So maybe he sees great profit. In this. <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 like Roe used the word vanity, and it's the cinematic equivalent of vanity publishing. Like when you self-finance a film, write, direct, and act when you've no real experience. Like it's pushing. He wants to be James Bond. Nobody would let him be James, James Bond. Bond or Johnny English. So, so he's, he's, he's decided to be James Bond under a different name. And you know, one thing that really startled me is that he's he's sixty four this week, I think, is and he? his love interest is less than half his age. Like who saw that coming? Well, so he's going with Hollywood <laughs> yeah, Norms there. Well done. <laughs> but the, but the other thing, I, I don't know if you came across this role. You might have come across. Uh, there was a, a guy who did a Twitter feed a few years ago on Michael Flatley's autobiography. Mm. 
And it was one of the, I tried to find it, but mysteriously it's disappeared of the internet completely. That is Michael Flatley's influence. You don't mess with Flatley (laughs) or Victor Blackley. But but it it was uh, so funny because there was extracts, like like it's a a convention in publishing that you often have a quote at the top of every chapter. And there was a theme that quickly became apparent with these quotes. Like there's one from uh, Jennifer Lopez who says, Michael is the sexiest man, man I've ever met. There was, was that about Michael Flatley? Did he just leave <laughs> off the surname of whoever yeah. she was talking about? Then, there was a quote from a Sunday Times uh, feature. You know, you notice his thighs quiver and shudder in a way that I've never seen in a man who wasn't horizontal. So he has these little preambles <laughs> to each chapter. <laughs> and you go, wow. And it gets better. So Mills and Boone writer yeah. is suddenly reporting on Michael Flatley. Yeah. If you can find it, uh, like uh, chapter 21 is called Sexy Dancing. It starts up dancing is sexual energy. The greatest feeling in the world. I think I gave Irish dancers some feeling, something above the knees and that's exactly how it should be. So that's what you get up to when you live in a castle in Cork, like uh, Matt. Well, listener says it sounds like a Marvel movie. I think it's uh, like, it's so funny. Like it actually, the trailer isn't as bad as I was expecting. I will give it like it looks fairly decent. It's not that different from any other movies. Even the sort of the punchline there Father, I have sinned. Well, I'm going to sin again. That reminds me of Mickey Rourke in A Prayer for the Dying. Do you remember that? (laughs) It's a bit like, what is the Monaco Film Festival role? Like, is that any credibility? Because they've given him Best Actor. It's a non-profit independent film. So I will say, I had a look back over the Best Actors and Best Films that are awarded. They're very small films. So they usually, so he won Best Actor at it a couple of years ago. And then there, so there was a report in The Sun saying, it means he could win an Oscar. And I was like, no, that's that's not what it means. But I just love it because, yes, it doesn't sound in really minds off loads of films we've already seen. But that's the point. It's like it's taken every single cliche from the spy genre. It reminded me so much of, do you remember in The Office where Michael Scott made his spoof uh, spy movie that he took incredibly seriously called Threat Level Midnight and it was just a ram of cliches just thrown at a screen. It reminded me that I'm going to have so much fun. I can see this being like the room, you know, midnight screenings, people getting involved. It can be like the disaster artist. It'll just be one of these glorious films that we watch for years to come. Maybe because it's so bad, but we'll enjoy it anyway. Let's not let's not get ahead of ourselves <laughs> as to what it might be like. We we get to that in September. Hey, Ro, I'm going to stay with you. Tell us about the controversy that Florence Pugh, the actress, has been involved in this week. Uh, I love Florence Pugh. She's such a talented actress. People have seen her in Black Widow, but also in things like Midsummer and Lady Macbeth. She's an incredible actor, really self-possessed. She's only 26, and she was at um, a Valentino show in Rome, a fashion show, and she wore this beautiful pink gown that was beautiful and tool but it was sheer on top and you could shock horror see her nipples through this dress and this was just a beautiful fashion statement she was making it was a glorious gown but of course as we know in Ireland during a heat wave there is a double standard in the world where men can walk around topless and show their nipples and women can't and this is enforced by social media outlets Sorry, like Instagram, Instagram apparently will actually block out male nipples but or female nipples yeah. but not male nipples which has led to some brilliant photoshops of women posting topless photos but photoshopping men's nipples over their own nipples and going, see, it's fine. But there is this horrible double standard in the world. And Florence Pugh, 26 year old, got so many horrific comments, magazines, individuals online, commenting on her body, criticising her body, uh, criticising the shape of her body, criticising that she had the confidence to go out in this dress. And she spoke out about it. And as usual, she was just incredibly articulate, saying that she's confident, she was happy, she felt beautiful, she felt strong. But she said, it's so interesting to 
watched just how easy it is for men to totally destroy a woman's body publicly, proudly for everyone to see. And she pointed out the double standard that we have in the society and places like uh, Instagram that perpetuate it. Would you suspect though, Rose, that there might be as many women who were making comments as men on social media? I think there's always internalised misogyny in the world and that is the point when you set up these double standards between men and women. There are women who want to still align themselves with power, who want to say, look, no, I'm a good, respectable girl and I play by the rules. But the point is the rules are there to oppress women. They're there to take rights away from women. And fair play to Florence Pugh for speaking out what about it. What do you it. make of this, Karen? I think it's just depressingly familiar because so many times have you heard stories like this that, you know, women are being effectively demonised for something they wore. Like the, the amount of uh, prominent woman in music or film that this has happened to is a long one and it's going back decades. It's going back to when I was a teenager. I can remember, I can remember... I can remember it in every decade I've been around. So, like, it's just, uh, you just wonder, Isn't that why? Like, why, what is the point? Like, why do people feel that it keeps yeah, doing it? Yeah. The well, same it's, thing. It's, it's, as Rose says, it's internalised and it's very deeply internalised. And it's condi- there's conditioning uh, coming from peers and coming from... Um, but so co- the, social, the social media make it worse than the ability of people to make a comment without filter. I think so. Yeah, I think And people feel powerful when they're criticising someone else. But I think particularly recently, like as we're watching in the States, Roe v. Wade being overturned, there are are links between these things. There are links between telling women that their bodies are obscene, that they have to cover up in ways that men do not, and taking women's rights away and saying you do not have bodily autonomy. You know, free the nipple, this kind of Instagram campaign that's saying women should be allowed to show their nipples in the way that men's are. People might dismiss that as as, as frivolous, but there are links between the way we police women's bodies and how though that form of policing then escalates into laws and take away women's rights in oppressing them. So we really have to look at the whole picture here. Kieran, tell us about how Love Island star of the past, Molly May Haig, has uh, been manipulating Instagram. Uh, yeah, just let me take that one. Oh yeah, that was... Um yeah, she like if if you're on Instagram at all, or if you watch Love Island, you will see you will know of the brand Pretty Little Thing because um, it's always around social media and, and it's very much involved with the Love Island thing. But she's been um, there are certain you know in, in terms of like product placement things. There's there are social media rules, and she posted a picture of herself wearing a Pretty Little Thing dress. Uh, along with a link to buy it, and she's uh, she's a paid role as creative director, and she's you know she plugged it. But under the UK advertising code, promotional po- posts must clearly indicate they're paid for endorsements, typically using the hashtag uh, uh, ad. But people get around this all the time, like like particularly famous people that they. They use uh, Instagram especially to flog things. So I don't know why she's been particularly singled out. Like, I don't think... I think it's probably exceptionally well known that she works for this particular company by all of her followers, isn't it? Yeah, like I think there's there's a thing that Molly May, she also has representatives. Like I actually doubt hugely that Molly May is writing her own captions. Like mm. this is probably some intern who left off the hashtag. And I do think uh, we do love singling out successful women, particularly successful influencers, particularly sexu- successful influencers who got their start on reality TV and tearing them down. And I think Molly May has built a really, really, really good brand for herself. She said some dodgy things. She is young. She is learning. But I think, they're re- I think it's really good that the advertising agency are cracking down on this because 
I think the level of insidious advertising, particularly towards young women all the time, is really pervasive. The amount of uh, famous people who get free products, uh, who don't say that they've got them free, who lie about things, just outright lie. There was Molly May, one of the things I got slightly more angry about was she was flogging skincare, but she was using a filter that blurs your skin to make it look even more perfect. And I think it's really good that people are uh, cracking down on saying, if you're a something free, if you're profiting from this, you should signal to your young viewers. But I think it's the body image and the beauty things that are more insidious when people get fillers, loads of work done, and then they say, no, it's because I use a skincare product when they have spent thousands on additional things. And I think that's where transparency really needs to lead into the beauty industry. No. Can you imagine being an employer and finding that uh, the parents of your new young employee ring up to give out that you're not treating them well enough? That's one of the claims that was made by a HR consultant this week here in Cunningham. Uh, Gen Z, as they're taking up summer jobs in the hospitality sector, are somehow sort of as soft as an ice cream. Yeah, this story annoyed me, to be honest. It really annoyed me. Like, I don't know who he is. Damien McCarthy, chief executive of HR Buddy, and he's, um, you know, he's billed as a leading HR consultant. And I definitely wouldn't be consulting with him. Because I I feel very sorry for young people that they're branded with this crap all the time, being a snowflake generation, which is a terrible cliche. I know even things he brings up here that they quote employment law to you. Is that not a good thing that they're interested in employment law? Like this is a generation, um, you know, you're talking about being fragile. They're the first generation that will be poorer than their parents. They're going into minimum wage jobs, often zero hour jobs with no security. If you join a union, yeah, you're the worst person in the world and you probably wouldn't be even be let in some workplaces. And, you know, the people who cling on to this thing, because in a lot of, like I know from the media, there was a culture in a lot of places of bullying and intimidation and very toxic workplaces. I and mean, some people think that's the way that people should be bossed around and that these people are too uppity or too sensitive. But I, I, my sympathy with the young people and the, they're taking summer jobs. They been, haven't been able to go out effectively in two years because of COVID. They've lost two real... It doesn't matter if you and I didn't go out during COVID. We had our day. We're in injury time, Matt. That's because it was... <laughs> but yourself, but for young, yeah, for young, we're the same age. <laughs> I know, but I don't regard myself yeah. as been an injury okay. time yet. But, but for time. young people now, I, I just hate this uh, punching down on them and I hear it a lot. But I'm delighted to hear you say that because my experience of young people we've had coming and working here in recent years is that they've been absolutely terrific and it's easy for older people to punch down row, isn't it? Absolutely. And I do just want to flag, this is one person mm. giving very anecdotal evidence. This isn't, you know, he's just saying, oh, we've had incidents of parents ringing up to complain on behalf of their children. And this proves that their children can't handle themselves in the, in the adult world. That is an anecdote. It's not backed up by anything in any of the reports that I have read. And of course, that might have happened. Absolutely. That has happened before. But again, I think we need to look at uh, exactly as you were saying, like people are not getting rewarded in the same way they do. They're going to be poorer than their parents. They're not being offered long-term job stability. They're not being offered wages that are matching the cost of living. And then they're saying, no, we want a work-life balance. Of course they do. They're also a generation that has spent two years going through COVID. And I think what's really important is saying there are cultural norms that are shifting and also there are workplace 
these cultural norms and it's up to the workplace and it's up to HR and it's up to schools to say here's how you can have conversations here you, how you can manage expectations if a boss is taking advantage of you here's a respectful way to push back and starting those conversations instead of bosses expecting young people to come into the workplace not rewarding them the same way expecting that they can change their schedules expecting that young people will automatically have no social lives will be happy to take on any overtime will be happy to work on weekends with no notice a huge thing for young people is um, bosses texting them at all hours or adding uh, work requests in at all hours and not respecting young people's time and the ability to switch off and so workplaces themselves need to be able to say instead of blaming very rare cases where someone might say I don't know ma'am I don't know how to deal with this my boss is being really aggressive like what do I do and a parent getting protective instead of going this is representative of a whole generation which it's absolutely not making it normal to go okay you're going to start a job let's have a chat with the HR people if you have a problem here's how the roster is going to work and catching up culture wise this can only be a good thing that young people are informed and standing up for themselves As Steph says lower paid jobs have always been like this having respect for staff is rare Another thing I want to talk about, Kieran Cunningham, is uh, Limerick, where apparently they will no longer be able to guarantee Sunday Mass in every church. I would have thought there would be a lot of them in praying in advance of their hurling <laughs> final this Sunday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it seems we stories like this come around uh, fairly regularly over the last, uh, I would say even over the last 30 years about scarcity of priests and stuff, but... But, um, Doesn't mean it's untrue, Karen. Oh no, 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 no. That's what I mean. But I mean it. Uh, I don't. I mean it's nothing new. But I would say that the problem is getting worse all the time because I do note, um, like I, I don't go to church, but the odd time it would be would be for a funeral or a wedding, and the priests are often over eighty now. Like yeah, it is very noticeable. What's going to happen to the future of funerals? Though? And maybe this explains why the. Uh, the removal the night before is now so rare that there actually isn't a, pers- a priest there to conduct a removal service. Yeah. So I- even for many people who don't go to church for mass on a Sunday, they might still go to the funerals. Are we going to end up with secular funerals conducted, maybe not in churches, but elsewhere, because simply the churches aren't there to do them? I, I never thought of that, but you could, you could imagine it would happen. Like I know... I know there are there are parishes, especially in Dublin, that that, that have African priests, so the, 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 which is a reversal of the old thing when Irish priests used to go off to Africa. But uh, I think we, you will see import probably more priests being imported from maybe South America and Africa, and also uh, possibly the use more of lay uh, lay people to to, to fulfil various functions, as you said. Yeah, because you know, we we all know of wedding or registry office wedding ceremonies and they've become far more common mm. rather than people going to the church. But yet so many people, maybe because they're older generations, usually the church is where the funerals go from, even Absolutely. if people hadn't been married there. But what happens if there are no priests to actually conduct the funerals? Yeah, and, and the funerals to, are such a major part of Irish life. Mm-hmm. Completely. And I actually just did a writing course at the Irish Writers' Centre and one of the writers was really beautiful and was writing about um, Zoom funerals and how they just lack that sense of community, that sense of when people are grieving, it's so important to come together to be there for each other, to witness each other's grief and to witness all of you going through this transformation of loss. And I think, I'm not a religious person, but I think there is something really sad about the church was such a huge part of Irish people's lives. And now that more and more people are moving away from it and now that the church itself is lacking priests the funding is down um, 
there is a gap in our society for ritual and community. And I think psychologically, we really haven't grappled with how important these things are to us. And so even looking at what church offers for people, yes, it offers religion, of course it does, but it offers connection, it offers ritual, it offers community, it offers people to come together at the most important times of their life, when they are coming together, when they're losing somebody, when everything is you know chaotic and a moment of meditation and reflection together. And I think what could be really interesting is to take this opportunity and people are finding spirituality in their own ways. But my issue is that it's it's often hyper individual. People are doing it alone. And I think mm-hmm. it's really important, particularly coming out of COVID to say isolation is really wrecking our society on individual levels, macro levels. What can we fill this gap with? How are the ways that yeah. we can come together and create ritual for religious people? That could be religious, religious teachers, parishioners coming together, discussing what their faith means to them on a Sunday instead of going to a mass or as well as going to a mass. For non-religious people, what are the ways that we can gather, we can be there together, create community and be there for the important moments like loss, like marriages. Ritual designers are a new big thing now, which I think could be really exciting. Last okay. for you, Karen. Yeah, because I, 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 it's something I actually noted because I come from part of the country in Donegal that still has wakes, like a lot of pl- yeah. places don't have wakes anymore. And uh, during COVID, uh, people really felt the lack of that, you know, that they couldn't mm. grieve properly. And, you know, people say an online funeral is so strange, but there was no wake at all. Like the wake was a, an essential part of the grieving process and it was a communal part of it. And I, I think the lack, uh, even if it's not within a religious framework, there's something to be said for them. Karen Cunningham, she's sports writer with the Irish Daily Star and Ron McDermott, who is relationships writer in the Irish Times and movie critic with Hot Press. Thank you very much for being with us here on The Last Word in Today FM. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.